Hey, welcome Hope Church family and friends. Thanks for joining us this weekend. By the way, fathers, happy Father's Day. I hope you have a special day with your family. And in honor of fathers, I've decided to tell some bad dad jokes. So you might want to write these down. I don't trust stairs. They're always up to something. Yes, I can hear the groans out there already. What do you call a person who has no body and no nose? Nobody knows. Did you hear the rumor that they, that, 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 about butter? Well, I'm not going to spread it. <laughs> My wife's going to kill me for this one. How do you make a tissue dance? Just put a little boogie in it. That's funny. Why did the scarecrow win an award? Because he was outstanding in his field. Yeah, I'm reading a book about anti-gravity, but it's impossible, and it's impossible to put it down. All right, just, just uh, one more. I've got a great joke about construction, but I'm still working on it. I like telling dad jokes. Sometimes he laughs. Anyway, <laughs> we're in the book of Jonah, and uh, I want to just jump right into the text. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. Let me read it to you, and you can follow along with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It said this, Go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah warned, uh, Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in dust. So that, that's a, in the ancient society, that was a sign of mourning. So this was very common when people were mourning or repenting, they would do that. He said this, This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. He says, who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now notice Jonah's response. To, to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. This seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I, I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He says this is a very interesting insight by Jonah. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God's anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, 
Take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. So let's just summarize what's going on here. Assyria is a world power right now, probably one of the most powerful, most cruel uh, world powers during this period of time. And so Jonah sees them, and understandably so, as a natural enemy of his people, the nation of Israel. Um, It's understandable that he doesn't want them to do well and survive. And he he obviously doesn't want to go to the city of Nineveh and preach there. Um, But when he finally uh, announced God's coming judgment, there was this massive turning, this massive repentance in response. And God uh, gave them a reprieve and did not destroy the city. Now, the, the problem that Jonah's having is very simply this. How can God uphold his covenant? Because he's made in a covenant or an agreement with the people of Israel. And uh, how can he do that? How can he keep the covenant with his people and show mercy to the people that are a a real threat to that covenant? Uh, They're enemies. So how can God show, how can God be at the same time a God of justice and allow evil to go unpunished? So that's essentially what Jonah's struggling with. So there's, there's uh, three lessons we want to draw from. There's a lesson from Jonah. There's a lesson from the people of Nineveh. And there's a lesson from God. So here's the first lesson. The lesson from Jonah is you can obey without obeying. <clears throat> you can obey without obeying. So Jonah technically did what God told him to do. He said, go to the city of Nineveh, preach the gospel, and uh, warn them. Or not the gospel, but warn them. You know, the judgment is coming. And so that's essentially what Jonah did. And we have a very short message of what he said. He could have said more. He may have said, uh, you know, something added to it. But essentially, he did the bare minimum. We get the impression he did the bare minimum of what he was supposed to do. And notice what it says in verse uh, 4 of chapter 3. Jonah began going uh, a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, Again, he could have said, he could have done more than uh, just warning the people. He could have been doing a bunch of things. We're really not sure what he did. But um, he preaches a, a message of repentance and, and um, he does on the outside what he's supposed to be doing. But his heart, as we'll see in a minute, is not in it. Because if you go to verse 5 of chapter 4, notice that when he's done and when God relents and decides not to destroy the city it says this that Jonah had gone out and he sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter he sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city so what is the question is what is Jonah waiting for what is it that Jonah is waiting for I believe what Jonah is waiting for is he's waiting for you'll read about the Old Testament about Sodom and Gomorrah how God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and I think that's exactly what Jonah's waiting for. I think he's hoping that God will destroy the city of, Ju- uh, the city of Nineveh. I think he's absolutely waiting for that and uh, hoping that that will happen. Now, this is a really good example of doing the right thing but having a really bad attitude while you're doing it. And Paul addressed that in the New Testament. So you won't have these verses, but just uh, think about, write down uh, Philippians chapter 1. I want to read a couple of verses from Philippians 1, verse 15. This is Paul describing people 
who are preaching the gospel with the wrong motive. And here's what he says. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, uh, knowing that I uh, am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they, uh, they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoiced. So there, clearly, Paul is illustrating, illustrating how two sets of people are doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And Paul basically says, well, the gospel wins, and, and so I don't really care about motives. Now, God does. God cares about our motives. So the question I want to ask you is, as we uh, talk about this is, does your attitude conflict with your actions? And, and maybe that's happened to you recently where you've allowed your attitude not to be in with your actions. Now, let's, let's just, let me just stop there and put a time out and a disclaimer. There are times in my life and probably in yours where you've done the right thing, but you haven't had a good motive. I'm not saying to you right now, and hear me clearly, I'm not saying because you don't have a good motive, don't ever try to do, you know, wait until your motives are completely perfect before you do something. What I am saying, though, is that when you do something, make sure that your motives are right for why you're doing it. And if you did something good, but your motive was wrong, maybe you ought to examine your heart and say, okay, what went wrong there, and how can I fix that? So that the next time I do it, it's, it's the right action, but the right motive, that they line up. And, and to me, that's kind of what legalism is. Legalism is essentially doing the right things with the wrong motives. It's, you're, you're following all the rules and regulations, the Pharisees and the scribes, everybody in the, you know, in in, in uh, the community in, in that day would look at them and say, you know, they're, the, they're knocking it out of the park. But their hearts were so hard. Their motives, you know, their, their motives were so bad. Look at Jonah. Jonah is at a place, and, and I said this before, sometimes we can't, you can't smell your own stink. I don't think he even realized what he was saying. He is arguing with Almighty God here. He is um, arrogant, he is questioning God, he's proud, he's become judgmental, he's, he's, he's kind of overlooked his own shortfallings, and, and he's looking at others, and he's willing to have a whole group of people be just absolutely destroyed. So he's doing the right thing out of necessity, but he's not allowing his heart to, to be the driving force. And I think we need to look at our motives, check our motives on that. So check your attitude and ask God to search your heart. And, and don't, don't be fooled um, by your actions alone. Go deep into your motives and say, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for the right reason? All right, so that's the first lesson, okay? You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Here's the second one. The lesson from the people of Nineveh. And, and you may have heard this phrase before, maybe you haven't. The phrase is, sorry is, as sorry does. And I'll explain that in a minute. Notice the text, and I just want to jump back there for a minute and read it to you. Uh, this is uh, the, when the, they, re, they repent. It says, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals uh, be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone 
call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways uh, and their violence. So it looks as though, from all appearances, that this whole city is repenting, right? Now, we know that during this time, Assyria was racked with um, famine. There was uprisings. There was an earthquake. There were a lot of bad things. And many scholars believe that so many of these things that were happening in, in Assyria had caused the people to, to, to be very jittery and very ready for a repentance because they had so many, you know, upheavals. Kind of like what we're going through right now, right? We have all these upheavals going on in our culture. But evidently, uh, whether it was Jonah's preaching or whether it was what's going on in their life, doesn't really matter. The bottom line is there is certainly a turning of their behavior, and the king jumps onto the bandwagon and wants to become part of the solution. And so, uh, but the question is, is this repentance? You see, repentance is not necessarily uh, the same thing as conversion. What do I mean by that? This seems to be a baby step for the, for the nation of Assyria and for the city. Uh, they're going to go on and ultimately in, in about 40, 30 to 40 years, they're going to take the, the northern tribes into captivity. So uh, they're, they're, they haven't repented ultimately. They're, they're still in the midst of their issues. So this was a short-term uh, salvation. This was a short-term reprieve that they have. So it's one thing to say you're sorry. It's quite another thing to repent. And that's the phrase, sorry is, sorry does. What that means is, and maybe you had this happen with your kids or with a spouse or with a friend or, you know, somebody at work. They'll say to you, oh, I'm sorry. And then they go on and do the same thing again and again and again and again. And so the question is, are they really sorry? Because sorry is, sorry does. If you're really sorry, then you won't do it again. If you really have turned, repented, there'll be a change. So the question I want to ask is, what is true repentance? What is true repentance? And I think there's a couple of things. Um, a couple of descriptors of repentance. Repentance simply means to turn 180 degrees and do exactly what you, uh, whatever you're doing wrong, stop doing it and start doing what is right, okay? So uh, there's a step of humility um, instead of pride. And so we think of repentance in light of God's grace that I can let go of keeping up this good image. I can extend grace to others because I'm aware of my own shortcomings and how God has extended his grace to me. So when I've truly repented and I understand repentance and what God has done for me, I have grace to give to other people. And so that's a part of repentance. Another part of repentance is true brokenness over sin. I have counseled many, many people over the years, and uh, they're sorry for their sin. But they're mainly sorry that they got caught. They're not sorry for the sin itself. In other words, they're dealing with the consequences, and they're saying, I'm sorry that I got caught, and I'm sorry that I hurt you, and I'm sorry I'm going through all these consequences, but I'm not really sorry that I sinned. And uh, that's, a, that's a big thing. It's one thing to be sorry for the consequences of your sin. It's another thing to be sorry for the sin itself. And when you understand what your sin did and what it does as far as putting Jesus Christ on the cross, it, you take on a new 
a new, uh, sin becomes a, a much more severe thing. Here's the third thing about repentance. There's a turning away from repeated beha- behavioral patterns. Um, see, when we repent, we don't make excuses. We don't say, it's your fault, or it was how I was raised, it's my parents. You don't blame shift. When you repent, you say, it's on me. And I never want to do this again. I want to grow. I want to learn. I don't want to do this again. And that's the difference between saying you're sorry and repenting. If somebody's truly repented, you will see a change in their life. Now, they may have a slip now and then, but they'll immediately take ownership for that. And I've seen there's a big difference between somebody who says they're sorry and there's a difference between somebody who has truly repented. And so repentance is a long-term thing. It's not just a short turning. That's why I always say when I hear of somebody who's turned their life around, I say, give me a couple of years and then we'll, de- we'll decide that, right? And the real question is, what are you doing today? What are you doing now? Are you, are you repenting now of, of your sin or are you still in the middle of it? All right, here's the third lesson. And this lesson is from, um, from God. And I got this uh, phrase, hair triggered. I just thought it was so cool. Our, our God has a hair trigger compassion. And that's kind of what Jonah's upset with, right? Jonah, God's prophet's waiting, sitting on this mountainside, looking down at the city of Nineveh, and he's waiting for a Sodom and Gomorrah uh, destruction. And nothing. There's no destruction. He camps out on a hillside. He's hoping and praying that God will destroy the city. Nothing. And he realizes little by little that God is going to show compassion to the people of Nineveh that don't deserve it. And notice what Jonah says about, this is very interesting what Jonah says about about God. He says, I knew, I knew. You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah says, I knew that's what you were going to do. I knew you'd forgive him. I knew you weren't going to. That's why I didn't want to go. You have a hair-triggered compassion. That's what Jonah's saying. I knew I couldn't trust you. As I was going through this passage, I was thinking about, here's Jonah sitting up on a hill, looking down on the city of Nineveh, waiting for its destruction, hoping for its destruction. And then I was thinking to the New Testament, where Jesus looks down on Jerusalem, and his heart is absolutely destroyed by Jerusalem, just broken, just Absolutely, he just is. And in and, and the passage, here's the passage. The, the passage is amazing from Matthew chapter 23. It says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. How often, how often I have longed to gather you as children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you are not willing And then he says this, look, your house is left left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again 
until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, so contrast Jonah, prophet of God, with Jesus Christ. They're both sent from God to go to cities. And Jesus goes into Jerusalem, God's holy city. As he looks on the city, he weeps. Jonah sits on a hill looking down at a wicked city. They are both wicked cities. Jonah looks down on a wicked city and wishes its destruction. Jesus looks down on a city and will become their deliverance. Outside the city gates, outside, Jesus is outside a city that's going to kill him. It's going to, uh, like Jonah, uh, he, he's a prophet sent from God, but he is obedient. He, like Jonah, will not just be rejected, but he'll be executed. I think Jonah thought he was going to be rejected, but he was accepted into the city. They heard his message and they believed. But no one believed the message of Jesus. And what God does is he shows his hair-triggered compassion by sending his only son to die for us, to take our punishment and our wrath. You see, here's the thing. Wood, nails, and pain are the only payment for our forgiveness. It's only through his death that we can be restored back to life. So we think of two cities. We think of two prophets. Two, two men sent from God. Jonah sitting on top of a city looking down. Not even seeing the flaws in his own life. Doing what he has to do. Not because he wants to do it. Motives are all bad. And then Jesus sent from God. Willingly going to the cross weeping over a city of sinners. That's the God that we serve. A God that looks at our lives and sees our sin and sees our attitude and sends his son. And Jesus, when he looked down at the from the cross, his last statement was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So let me ask you a couple of questions as we close. Have you experienced his hair-trigger compassion? See, when you come to grips with his uh, grace, it will wreck you. It will absolutely wreck you. But it will also rebuild you. Because you'll see two sides of an important coin. One coin says, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, and I can't save myself. But the other side of the coin is I'm a son and I'm a daughter and I'm beloved of God. So when you experience his hair trigger compassion, when you understand his grace, what happens? It will wreck you, but it will also rebuild you. Secondly, have you extended his hair trigger compassion to others? Have you extended his compassion, his grace, the gospel to others? Now, here's the thing. You can't give what you don't have. And so the question is, have you ever called upon the Lord? The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And what it means is you repent. You turn from the direction you're going, from trying to self-save yourself, and you realize you're drowning and you need a Savior, and that's why Jesus came. He came for you to die for you. He came to give his life so that you could live. And the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you ever done that? I want to lead you in prayer as we do that. Let's just pray. So, Father, thank you for your word today through the book of Jonah, through the New Testament, and through Jesus. And thank you, Father, for the one sent from heaven to preach to the good news, Jesus, who became the good news by his death, burial, and resurrection. And thank you, Father, that all who call upon him will find life and forgiveness, those who repent. And instead of trusting themselves, they put their trust in him. Father, uh, for those of us who know Jesus, may we check our attitudes. It's okay to have the right actions, but sometimes our attitudes aren't lining up. And we need to learn to um, go deep into our hearts. So may your spirit and your word go deep into our hearts to look at our motives may be doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for a Savior who, when he looked down on lost sinners, wept. Help us to do the same thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.